0: most unlikely combination, (laughs) a professor of theology in Virginia with ten earned degrees or diplomas, perhaps eleven or twelve by now. He holds the doctorate in theology, the doctor of philosophy degree, and is the author of many books, and I urge you to read of his other qualifications, Dr. Lee. I am in good company. Martin Luther was a lawyer. (laughs) And John Calvin was a lawyer. But John Calvin said one thing in book four of the Institutes that isn't quite correct. He said the calling to be a magistrate, a lawyer, is by far the highest and the holiest calling to which any person can be called. I disagree. I do not believe that the calling to be a preacher is the highest calling. To me, that is a Roman Catholic point of view. I think that whatever calling you're in until the Lord changes it should be for you at that time the highest and the holiest calling which God has called you to for that particular point in time. So, uh, having been disparaged as a lawyer, (laughs) I will wear that badge of disparagement, seeing I still continue it to be a legitimate and a high and a holy calling. But shall we migrate from law to grace for purposes... (laughs) And then, as the great theologian Balfink, Balfink said, having been established in grace, get back to the law, because it's most ungracious to act contrary to law. I've been asked to address you on the doctrine of the Trinity, and what I propose to do is to give you not a legal nor a philosophical approach, but a theological approach, in three lectures, the first on God the Father, the second on God the Son, the third on God the Spirit, and the fourth lecture on all three in the Blessed and Holy Trinity. Now, it strikes me as very significant that God the Father, not exclusively, but preeminently, Fulfills the kingly role within the Trinity. He rules. God the Son fulfills preeminently the prophetic role. He is the Word, the principle of communication. God the Spirit fulfills the priestly role. He serves and he sanctifies. And so you see, long before Adam was prophet, priest, and king, The triune God in whose image Adam was created was the eternal prophet, priest, and king. This afternoon, then, God the Father, the King of the universe. I would like for us to read together, before we start, just four or five verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning verse 3, on the subject of God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Verse 15, wherefore I also After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of. Of him. Now, seeing I am a strict Trinitarian, I do believe in a three-point sermon with one <laughs> underlying central thought. And so I propose to uh, deal first of all with the works of God the Father, Father in the past, second, the works of God the Father in the present, and finally the works of God the Father in the future, and I shall follow the same outline in my subsequent addresses too. And to be doubly Trinitarian, each one of these three divisions will have three subdivisions. So in dealing with God's work, the Father's work in the past, I propose very briefly to deal with his work in eternity his counsel, and his creation, all of which as far as its actualization in time is concerned, is past, or at least in one sense, past. To understand the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God the Father, it is necessary for us to go way back in time beyond the other side of Genesis 1, verse 1. And there we are told, there and particularly elsewhere in Scripture, that at that quote time unquote in eternity there was an eternal triune God, but that within that one triune God it was the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, who is the very heart, the very source of the other two persons. Now, this is not Arian in any sense of the word. This is the teaching of the Word of God, and it is significant, I believe, that we find the word God frequently applied to God the Father, rather infrequently applied to God the Son, and hardly ever applied to God the Spirit in Scripture. In a certain sense of the word, even from a Trinitarian viewpoint, God the Father is the very heart of the Godhead. And all those great texts which converted Jonathan Edwards, First Timothy chapter 1, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, only wise God. And then again in the 6th chapter, um, That our Savior Jesus Christ will at the right time be revealed by God the Father, that blessed and only potentate, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, who only hath immortality. So we see that the Father, and only the Father, has the position of being the first person and not the second or the third within the eternal Trinity. So too, this is implied, I believe, in the doctrine regarding the goings forth of God the Son. We are told in John's Gospel that our Saviour Jesus Christ, relative not merely, I believe, to his incarnation, but relative to his essential deity, is within the very bosom of the Father. Notice, not was in the bosom of the Father, but is in the bosom of the Father. Of course, this means, and Jehovah's Witnesses who may be present take note, that the eternity of God's fatherhood uh, must be eternal. To be an eternal father, you must have an eternal son. There was a time when I was not a father, I only became a father when my child was born. But for an eternal father to be an eternal father, it is necessary to have an eternal son. And so we do end up, do we not, with the co-eternity of father and son. Yet nevertheless, it is the son who proceeds eternally by means of his eternal divine generation from the bosom, from the womb, as it were, of the father and not the Father who proceeds from the Son. The Father begets the Son, and not the other way round. God the Father in eternity is the fountainhead of all deity. In Proverbs 8, verse 22, we read, The Lord possessed his wisdom, which of course is Jesus Christ's, from the beginning of his way, when there were no depths, says the wisdom, says Christ, I was brought forth. There never was a time when God the Father was without wisdom, because he is the eternal and only wise God. He was never ignorant. But the wisdom of God, the second person of the Trinity, proceeded and proceeds eternally from the very depths and bosom of God the Father himself. He is the alone source of all being, as the Westminster Confession tells us, and as the Apostle reminds us in Hebrews chapter 11, he that cometh unto God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that seek him. He is in one word, Isaiah chapter 9, the everlasting Father. And yet, God, and especially the Father, Titus chapter 1, is the one from whom grace, mercy, and peace proceeds from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense then, in the sense of personality, there is an order within the Trinity itself. Now proceeding from the very eternal depths of God's being, to the extent to which he has graciously revealed these truths to us in his blessed infallible word, we now move on to his counsel. The Apostle James tells us, chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. "...and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither the shadow of turning." It is God the Father, the Father of lights, who gives us everything, and he has preordained to bring to pass everything that shall come to pass." And there is no shadow of turning, no reconsideration down to the smallest detail in respect of the realization of his eternal fatherly counsel in time. Oh, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we read, we read in fact in Ephesians 1, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who hath chosen us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, it is not so much Jesus Christ that chooses us, although the Bible does state so once. It is God the Father who has preordained and chosen those who are to be saved to be saved, and who has given them to God the Son as his reward on the basis of his perfect um, human obedience to the covenant of works which he kept in full in time and died for its breach on Calvary's cross. But election proceeds primarily from God the Father, that's the source, in Christ Jesus, yes, but not from Christ Jesus, I believe. So too in John chapter 3, verse 16, the very heart of the gospel We are not told that it is God the Son who so loves us, although that is true too. But we are told that God, yea, God the Father so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. Oh, the great and the glorious and the elective fatherly love of the eternal Father, strong to save, who gives us the very fullness of his own deity in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in creation we find the same truth taught. Do not assume at this stage, dear brother and sister, that I am separating the three persons of the Trinity from one another, far be it. As the Reformers said, omnia opera Dei et Trinitatis indivisa sunt, all the works of God of the Trinity are indivisible, but yet it is creation which is preeminently the work of God the Father although the Spirit and the Son were not absent therefrom. It is the work of redemption that is preeminently the job of God the Son, although the Father strengthened him and he possessed the Holy Spirit without measure thereunto. And it is consummation, it is the gathering and the calling and the sanctifying of God's elect, which is primarily the work of God the Holy Spirit on the basis of the Father's elective work, on the basis of the Son's death on Calvary. And so it is, as we look at creation, that we see that this is preeminently, yet not exclusively, the work of God the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, To us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him. Oh, there is not one atom of this universe in respect of which God the Father cannot declare, give it to me, it is mine. There is not one devil or demon in hell which is not in the hand of God the Father as his tool to be used on the basis of his own depraved responsibility, of course, to the greater magnification of the glory of God and our God and Father. So too, even in respect of humanity, we know of course the lie of liberalism that God after the fall is the Father of all men. We don't hold that. And yet in a certain sense I suppose we will have to admit that God did father as the Son of God, Adam, the forefather of all men now alive, and in a very special sense in Christ Jesus he is certainly the Father of the elect. And as relates to our relationship with one another, we are certainly brothers and sisters of the same heavenly Father by creation, yes, at base, but more specifically those of us who are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Even as the prophet Malachi wrote chapter 2, have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? And this fatherhood of God, this creative fatherhood of God, extends not merely towards us as his adopted children in Jesus Christ, nor even to the entirety of the human race from whom all people receive their names, Ephesians 3, but the fatherhood, the created fatherhood of God relates even to the inanimate creation. Even as we read in Job chapter 38, Job says, God, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, Job, hath the rain a father? A rhetorical question which, of course, demands the answer, of course, and I, Jehovah, am the father of the rain. Tell me, Job, hath uh, where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? And who uh, hath begotten the drops of dew? Who hath fathered the dewdrops, Job? And out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven? Who hath gendered or begotten it? And so we see that the entirety of creation proceeds from the hand of God the Father. Oh, the gratitude that you and I, then, have to show to him that we owe him. And how ungrateful is that beastly man who denies the authority and the fatherhood of God in his life. But moving on from the deeds in the past of God the Father, Let us secondly look at the present deeds of God the Father, namely, his providential care, his common grace, and his special saving grace. In a certain sense, of course, providence is nothing but God's um, affirmation of his creation. This is why Abraham Kuyper called providence creatio secunda, Creatio Continuer. It is the second creation. It is the continuation of the creation. It is God causing his erstwhile creation not to disintegrate, but moment by moment holding it together and promoting it and unfolding it. His providence. Well now, as Job has already signaled to us, chapter 38, Hath the reign of Father? The rain that was not just created once at the beginning of time, but the rain which he so plenteously pours out in his mercy upon the earth even from time to time? And Job, who provideth for the raven his food? When his young ones cry unto God, they wander they wander about for lack of meat. Or in the sermon the sermon on the mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, where our Saviour Jesus Christ enjoins us, Behold the fowls of the air, they sow not, neither do they reap, and neither do they collect their seeds together and put them into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. And then the application to us at the end of that chapter, Therefore, Take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Do you not know, ye of little faith, that your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all of these things, even before you ask? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all of these things will then Be given unto you. As the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully expresses it, that my only hope in life and death is that I know that I am not my own, but that I belong to my precious Saviour Jesus Christ and to His Father, without whose will not one hair of my head can turn black or white. And let me add, Not one sparrow can fall from heaven without the will of my heavenly Father, so that all things whatsoever that happen to me will redound ultimately to my own good. Yes, harvest time, and sowing time, and summer, and winter, and times of adversity and times of prosperity which you and I experience daily do not happen to occur, but are preordained by the providential care of our heavenly Father, without whose will we cannot as much as move the providence of God the Father that extends over all things, that relates even to the speed with which your young hairs as mine is now doing turn gray, The speed with which they fall out as we advance towards middle-aged baldness is preordained providentially by the eternal counsel of a loving Heavenly Father. Well, common grace also proceeds from God the Father. As we read in Numbers chapter 16 when Moses and Aaron were called upon to deal with the coup d'etat, with the sedition of Korah, Datan, and Abiram. And as Moses shakes his head in fatherly concern for his people, he lifts up his eyes and his heart and his hands unto God, and he says, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin? and shalt thou be rough with all the congregation? Moses acknowledges that even the evil activity of Korah, Dayton and Abiram, or as we would today say, even the evil machinations of those wicked, wicked men in the Kremlin and in Peking and in elsewhere, in the last analysis flow forth without excusing them for their evil in any way from the fatherly providential hand of God, which doesn't mean we haven't to resist them, but which nevertheless involves an acknowledgement of his fatherly control of history. Oh, what a comfort to know that our God and Father is the God of the spirits of all flesh, yea, even of the Datans, and the Korahs, and the Abiram's of this world. So too in Job chapter 12, we think of Job suffering in agony, the awful providential treatment which the Father dished out to him. We think of the ruination of his family. We think of the deprivation of his possessions. We think of the eating away of his flesh by all of these ulcers and macerations and and pus. And we see Job turn up his, hand, his hands and his face and his eyes to the Heavenly Father and say, The hand of the Lord hath wrought this, in whose hand is the soul of every living thing, and the breath, Of all mankind. And that realization my brother and my sister gave to Job. The courage to bear that cross and to continue. Gives to you and to me the courage to carry on right through the jaws of death and hell if need be. Knowing that it is well. It is well in the sight of our heavenly father. To thus inflict us. To chasten us to chisel us so that the image of Jesus our Savior may more and more pour forth from us in all of his glory as we have the edges knocked off us, which is a very painful but glorious and blessed process. So too in Hebrews chapter 12 we read that common grace, God's involvement, his fatherly involvement Even in the lives of those who are not elect, we have had fathers of our flesh who corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits? Why, of course, not just. Please note the Father of the elect spirits. More is stated than that. The Father of the spirits who preordains whatever comes to pass, who preordains even when a reprobate father correctly reprimands his reprobate or even his elect son, that proceeds from the Father of spirits by means of his involvement in common grace. And it happens today, it happens now, as you and I discipline our children. O beloved, But far more important, surely, to us as believers than God's involvement in common grace is his fatherly involvement in special grace, as like a father who pitieth his children, the Lord from heaven pities those who fear him and extends his fatherly concern towards us. Which of course called the Apostle Paul to jubilate in the words which we read at the beginning of this address, from heaven pities those who fear him, and extends his fatherly concern towards us. Which of course called the Apostle Paul to jubilate in the words which we read at the beginning of this address in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath predestinated us unto the adoption by Jesus Christ of sons of God. So too, we read elsewhere in the word of God. In Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son so that we, we who believe and who are the sanctified in the Lord Jesus, might receive the adoption of sons, and that we may know that we are sons of God, and that we call out to our heavenly Father, Abba, Father, oh, the cry of the Son of God, oh, the glorious privileges of God's elect, to call our Creator in Jesus Christ, Abba our Father. The moment I am 11,000 miles from my Father, and I miss him dearly, but our Heavenly Father is always near to us, and the cry of his children should be heard like music in his ears every second of the day. Father. That we can take all of our problems to Him because He loved us with that everlasting elective love whereby He fathered us, whereby He begot us, whereby He engendered us as His particular children by adoption through our big brother and our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, do you know this Father? Oh, do you know that you are his child? Oh, do you long to speak to him and to say to him, Father, you made me the way I am. Father, you preordain my life as it comes to pass. Father, you give me the trials and tribulations through which I have to pass. Father, Yea, let it be as it is good in thy sight, O Father. Discipline me more and more, and draw me ever nearer to thy loving bosom. What a glorious and a wonderful privilege that we have. And this, you know, is all portrayed to us in holy baptism. When we are baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, For we have one Lord and one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Baptism is the bond of the covenant which unites us to the Trinity. Baptism assures us that our Heavenly Father has marked us, has branded us as his children. But it also assures us that we, are brothers and sisters of the co-baptized, are children of the same Heavenly Father by adoption through the blood of Jesus and through the operation of his Holy Spirit. And this is the true ecumeny. We have much false ecumeny today. But the true ecumeny is that we live from our baptism, that with Martin Luther on his deathbed we can say, Thank God I have been baptized! I know my Father loves me. I know his Son died for me. I know his Spirit has called me. And I know that I am to love the children of God because God the Father loves them even as he loves me and has given baptism to all of us as the sign and the seal and the proof thereof. And that we have one Father who is above us all. One Father who is through us all, in the midst of us all. And one Father who is in us all as His children. But lastly, God the Father is also to be active in the future, not merely in the past and the present, but also in the ages to come. The future of your life and of my life from this second onward but the future and whatever future centuries of this world, as he has preordained, may yet unfold in his blessed eternal counsel. And this brings us firstly to the consideration of sanctification, sanctification. You see, we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, yes, but it is the Father who sent the Spirit. Now, I cannot possibly get involved in the consideration of the filioque controversy which split the Eastern and the Western Church as to whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone, thus Eastern Orthodoxy, or from the Father and from the Son, although I believe the Western Church was right on that score. But I think there is something to be said for the Eastern idea that it is ultimately the very bosom of God the Father from which... Uh, the Holy Spirit proceeded via the Son, or may I put it in this way, may I put it in this way, that God the Son proceeds from the eternal bosom of the Father, and then God the Spirit proceeds from the same bosom of the Father via the Son, and that the Son and the Father both send him forth into the world. Even as the earthly trinity, as the reflection of the heavenly trinity, man the image of God Adam, proceeding from the hand of God, his wife Eve perhaps paralleling the eternal son in a creaturely way, proceeding from the side, from the womb of Adam, and then their child like God the Holy Spirit proceeding from the father via the mother and from them both. Well be that as it may, sanctification, it seems to me, roots very firmly ultimately in the very bosom of God the Father. For in the fullness of time, as we read in Revelation, in uh, Galatians chapter 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. God the Father sent his Son, whereby the Holy Spirit crieth out in our hearts, Abba, Father. James chapter 1, every good gift proceeds from the Father of lights, of lights, who of his own will he begat us with the word of truth, so that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. When the Lord saves us by his grace, it is the Father of lights who begins that glorious work of sanctification in our heart by his Holy Spirit on the basis of the finished work of Christ as the first fruits, and then we are to produce more fruit, and still more fruit, and still more fruit through God the Spirit, because God the Father planted that seed in our hearts. So too we find our Savior Jesus Christ promising in John chapter 14, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, and he shall abide with you forever. This is very interesting. Jesus tells his disciples that the Father will give them another comforter. Jesus being the first comforter. So you see that Jesus came into the world and was sent by God the Father. But now he goes further. He says, I am not going to be with you for very much longer. I am going back to my Father But I will pray, and he will then send you another comforter, even as he sent me, the Holy Spirit. And he will sanctify you, and he will abide with you forever. Not just come in today and leave tomorrow as the Armenians so vilely teach, but come into your life once and for all and forever, and to stay there forever and ever. The abiding Spirit of God, who when he begins to sanctify us, continues to sanctify us, and works out to the very end that which the Father preordained in eternity past. I must hasten to conclude, as we develop our own sanctification proceeding from God the Father, we ultimately die, of course, and then, praise the Lord, we go to heaven, do we not? After Jesus' said goodbye to his disciples, he ascended into heaven, Acts 1, until a cloud received him out of sight. And then we have to go back to uh, Daniel chapter 7, which relates the ascension of our Saviour the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven back to the ancient of days, from which point onwards authority and power was given to him to rule over all nations. You may say, wait a minute, that's a strange view. I'd always thought that that was a second coming of Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven. So did I until I read Calvin's commentary on that and I saw the significance of the little word too. You see, it does not say, it does not say in Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man came on the clouds of heaven from the Ancient of Days. That would be the second coming. Oh no, it says he came on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And that's the ascension, which means that Jesus our Savior is ruling here and now as the Son of Man from the moment of his ascension onward and not only from the future second coming. And oh, what a difference that makes to our life when we realize it, when we realize we have a God who is ruling through Jesus Christ here and now and that this world belongs not to the devil, it is God's world and the fullness of everything in it belongs to our God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ Christ on the basis of his finished work as he rules the universe from heaven as the Son of Man and steers it and unfolds it down towards its victorious and glorious eschatological fulfillment. So our Savior is now in heaven, and he's preparing a place for us alongside of the throne of God the Father. And he taught us to pray, did he not, After this manner shall we pray in Matthew 6. Our Father, our Father, that art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth, here and now, as it is in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And then he also told us, uh, did he not, through the prophet David in Psalm one hundred and three, like a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth. Over all, And that means that there isn't one fragment of your life and of my life over which God the Father cannot say, that's mine. I own it. I own you, my child, everything that you have, everything you possess, that very pin in your lapel, that very piece of gold in your tooth, that very wig that you were wearing on your head, that very shoelace, in your boot or your shoe. It's mine. And it belongs to our Heavenly Father. And it's His. And you know, heaven isn't just a place that we go to when we die. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, does he not? That we, right here and now, we who are saved, are seated with Jesus Christ here and now in heaven. Read Calvin's commentary on that too. It's not a pie in the sky, by and by. It's a pie here on earth, here and now. He that believeth in the sun hath passed from darkness into light, shall not come into the judgment, but has everlasting life, the heavenly life, the kingdom of heaven, right here and now amongst us and between you and in the midst of you here on earth. Oh, that God's people would see this. All oh, that we would believe this, all oh, that we would preach this, all oh, that we would do it, I tell you, the forces of communism would crumble tomorrow as the Church of Christ, believing this, goes forward conquering and to conquer in the name of the Heavenly Father. How desperately we need this wonderful vision of the Fatherhood of God over every inch of this universe. Here and now. But we will go to heaven and that will be even nicer, will it not? (laughs) And then we will leave heaven. On the day of judgment we will leave heaven as I shall in one minute, Mr. Moderator, leave this pulpit. (laughs) I don't mean I anticipate being raptured any second. That wasn't my meaning. But I mean, sir, I mean that longing though I am to get to heaven, and I'm there right now, according to Ephesians 2, but longing though my soul is to get there in perfection, I don't want to stay in heaven. It would be miserable for my soul to stay in heaven forever without my body, because my body's part of me and I want my body back. <laughs> and the Bible tells me I'm going to get it back too. And everything I've ever done and everything I've ever achieved because the fatherly goodness of God has worked this out. And so you see on the day of the second coming the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible and heaven will come down onto the new earth. And that's our final destination. The new earth. Christianity is a very earthy religion. It's not worldly. But it's earthy. And if your religion is too cloudy and heavenly-minded so you know earthly good, may I plead with you on the basis of this infallible word that you will get an earthy, down-to-earth, relevant religion, realizing that everything that you and I do at this time under the superintendence of God the Father has value for eternity. On the new earth, forever. Or we find that... Jesus, our Savior, teaches us this. He tells us very clearly, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, everything in its own order. First, Christ is the firstfruits from the dead. And then in heaven he goes forward via his earthly body, the church, treading down all of his enemies until they have been reduced to the role of a footstool for his feet. And then cometh the end when our Saviour Jesus Christ shall hand over the completion of the kingdom to God, even the Father. And then as Calvin says, not Jesus, the mediator anymore, but the triune God, including, of course, the second person of the Trinity, the triune God in whose name we are baptized, and preeminently God the Father, shall be all and in all. So then, in closing, may we learn how to pray, and how to pray the Bible way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your arms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Verse 4. Thy Father which seeth thee in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Verse 6. When you pray shut the door and pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Do not be, verse 8, as the heathen, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before ye ask him, and therefore pray, Our Father which art in heaven. In this realization, then, shall we not say with the Apostle Paul, shall we not say, for this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Ephesians 3. Or shall we not in closing pray, with our Saviour and Big Brother, Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 11. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, For so it seemed good in thy sight. Do you know this God, the Father, as your Father? Amen.